0: Join us for part two of the dialogue with the remarkable Renaissance man, Jamie Wheel, who continues his downpour of brilliant insights, questions, challenges, and inspirations, always looking beyond our usual assumptions and current thinking. He invites us to explore how we can create healthy communities and scale peak technology experiences. We discuss what's next for humanity and how we can bring a new soul force to survival, sustainability, and to becoming the more that we always already are.
1: powerful contribution.
0: So what you're pointing to is the fact that, let's call it in traditional terms, a spiritual path or practice has many phases and stages and tasks along the way. And if we look at conventional the spiritual maps, most of the maps are about from starting from the time you first begin a practice to having some glimpse, the altered state. Well, now in our time, we've got adjuncts for that we've got a variety of practices and your book recapture the rapture really really lays those out beautifully with from everything from breath to sacraments to to sexuality to communitas etc so we have that mapped out and made it more accessible perhaps probably than any other time in history but you just pointed to the fact that that's the beginning of the path that opening is where the work begins because then there's there's a couple of th- tasks. Just talking about the older states, there's a stabilization of those states, the transformation from states to traits or from epiphany to personality. Houston Smith, the religious scholar, said it beautifully for the, the transformation of flat of flashes of illumination into abiding light. It's a wonderful, wonderful description. It's one of my but, favorites. I love, yeah, I love it. For Houston. Yeah. yeah, let's hear it for Houston Smith. What a man. So that but that that's not the end either. Then you've got to come back into the marketplace and there are maps of that oxherding pictures, which you alluded to from Zen, the 10 pictures which lay out the stages of the path and beyond that opening and even the stabilization of it, there is a coming back into life or the marketplace and learning first off how to f- just keep your act together. But even beyond that, learning how to become an instrument of what has been opened to in a way which makes oneself an instrument of help and healing and that that's another whole kind of wisdom and in the buddhism it's there's a difference between prajna which is the wisdom which comes from the opening to the absolute and upaya which is the wisdom of skill in helping and healing and teaching in the world so that's a whole another another thing and that that never ends that's an ongoing yeah. process which we're oh, yeah. all beginners at
2: yeah 100 I mean, I mean i'll mean, i see your houston smith quote and raise you a hafez but i just remember this, this one came to mind <laughs> as you were talking which was he, he said he says i am but a hole in the flute that is the body of christ listen to this music and i think that 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 notion of you know a The mountaintop is not the destination, right? And in real life right now, we're having Instagrammers getting up on peaks to take their picture, to take their selfie, and then promptly falling off to their death and dragging a bunch of uh, search and rescue folks into dangerous conditions. Like this has been happening in Aspen on Capitol Peak. For the last three, four years, you've got YouTube courage, and people going up there to get the summit shot, and that is also true with all the psychedelic experience. Like I've had this amazing thing, and I was brought up to the mothership, and this, that, and the other. Like, and and yes, there's that ego fixation of getting the summit shot. But Ed Weisters, is the you know preeminent American mountaineer who's summited Everest more than any other American, at least has said you know summiting is optional, but getting home is mandatory, and so. Yes, the completion of Campbell's Hero's Journey, the completion of any of the wisdom traditions to come home. So you're not, it's not 12 o'clock and you're out. you got to keep going and you've got to all the way back, right down to the bottom at six o'clock. But then is potentially, can you actually go to the center of the clock? Mm
0: -hmm. Right.
2: Mm -hmm. And can you then, so so I have completed the journey and now I actually, I'm not even just, just there. I am now in the center of the entire circle, holding all instantiations, (laughs) and living from there. And to me, you know, in, in the book, like obviously in the technical literature that was called Anthropos, at least in the kind of Western Hermetic tradition. And I then I call it kind of like twice born humans. Like if you, first time we're born, we didn't choose this. So there's a lot of desire to like resist it, resent it. There's that cosmic orphan sense of being dissociated or separate. Like, I didn't want this, I didn't opt in, fuck this. This is mean and hard and weird and scary, and I don't like it. So we get sucked into transcendence and bypassing. But to become a twice born human is, is the Jimmy Stewart wonderful life, is the Ebenezer Scrooge, is the Dorothy of like, oh, I'm, I'm at death's door. You know, the, the Lucinian mystery is die before you die. And now I realize the preciousness, the tenderness, the uniqueness, the value of that life that I was really kind of sick and bitter about. So I come back open-hearted with a hell yes. And that's the first time I'm all in. But even that, like, it, I don't think it's helpful to sling Anthropos around because you've set up another subject <laughs> object shift of like, I'm here, it sucks down here. I want to be there. Tell me more, sell me more. So <laughs> instead it's this notion of like homegrown humans. Because, like the, the tenth panel of the ox herding is literally the wisest scholars cannot find him. His doors and windows are locked. He's gone and selfless. And I don't honestly care whether somebody has to do this whiz-bang hero's journey up, you know, up to the mountain or you know, to the back of the galaxy and back to realize this is what it is. Or if someone is just the kind of grandma sitting on the front porch in her rocking chair who never didn't think that and 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 my wife is a great example she is intuitively pure love always has been grew up on a farm raising horses and and you know for me i would like go i'd like run like quantum ai computing to be like might be good to pat your lover on the shoulder now and stroke them lightly so that you communicate you care about her and she'd be like dude are are you (laughs) couldn't you just be loving Couldn't you, did you really have to solve it like to the nth level to come back to realize something that is intuitively obvious? So I also want to like, with all of our bias towards developmentalism, I also just want to acknowledge good old fashioned rootsy human love and wisdom, and it doesn't require fancy waistcoats. It doesn't require quadrants or polysyllables. It doesn't require diagnostics or fancy states. It can just be simple, down-home, rootsy wisdom as well. Now, not a lot of us are there anymore, but a lot of us have been sucked into postmodern consumer society, and we have to kind of like get out of that. But the simplicity, I'll take the simplicity on either side of the complexity.
1: So one of the things you've, been, you've talked about a lot recently, or talks I've been listening to, is about cults. And I was in an awful cult really toxic thing, not a groovy one, nothing to say, well, the master was, he was really awakened, but he was hadn't dealt with the shadows. or something, it was just all twisted. So I was very interested in that, your analysis of it, which I found was very useful. But then you started talking about healthy cults. How do we come together? Given everything that you just kind of laid out here, how do we begin? And I think you maybe just answered it. We started starting with kindness, obviously,
2: <laughs> big deal.
1: But how do we 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 get together and nurture? And since my cult experience, I've been very much a loner, and it's taken me really years to, to reach out to community again. When I would go to raves in the Bay Area back in the '80s, I was always in uh, the chill room, just. Meditating, I just no, 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 I can't do that stuff again. So it's kind of been an awakening for me to the I, the idea of healthy cults, communitas. Uh, how do we? Uh, what can you say about that? And what have you learned from your study of unhealthy cults, controlling cults? And one of your bullet points uh, I wanted to put out there to add to your list is: there's no healthy way to leave. There's no honorable way to leave. And as soon as you run into that, I was like, okay, here I am again. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, first we probably just need to detune because I you know, deliberately grabbed the third rail of the C word, right? And, and, and talked about ethical cults versus cultic cults. But just, you know, first principles, right? Cultus in Latin means a bunch of things. It's also the root of culture, but it all, it, one of the meanings is to worship. Yeah. So David Foster Wallace, everybody worships. The only question is what? And you better pick something good because anything less than something divine is going to eat you alive. So everybody cults. The question is what kind? And just historically, there were the traditional cults, the mystery cults, a cult of Kali, Dionysus, Eleusis, any of those things, early Christianity, mystery cult, right? Those Those were traditional in the religious scholarly sense. Those were mystery cults. And they had subjugation of self to the lineage. So it had gone on for generations, maybe hundreds or thousands of years. This is the way we do stuff. This priest or hierophant is one in a long line. They've got bosses. They report up, you know, even to living or dead people around and behind them. So the subjugation of the self was buffered by the lineage and then in the 20th century we got the mashing of east and west and we got a lot of lone wolves we got we got the chongpas coming from tibet we got the adidas self-appointing we got a whole host of indian yogis etc and many of them osho and Clean or, or you know marishi like, like that whole bunch and many of them declared a break with lineage and when they came to the west they said i'm a clean slate i'm a new covenant subjugation of self, we're still playing that game because that's the tradition and how this appears to go, but now I'm no longer buffered or grounded in lineage. And that became massively problematic. So the question is, is what is an ethical cult that doesn't require subjugation of self? Not only because it appears not to be super healthy in most instances, but also because just no one would submit to it these days. It just doesn't fit our current anti-hierarchical moment. So how can we say, how do we not subjugate the self at all, but leave space for the substantial boost in power and possibility of collective coherence. And so to me, that's the inquiry. And I wrote a culty cult checklist, which was nine points to just check to see, uh, are you in? Are you following? Or are you leading in these ways? If so, be super careful, because they often don't end well. And one of them is any form of well, a grabbing the grabbing the one ring, like it like it like in Tolkien, any time a leader sets up a mythologized origin story, either hints or claims outright absolutist enlightenment so that anything they're doing is also coming from an enlightenment state. So they just divorce all of their shadow and it must be you. And if I've really done something wacky and you really got me on this one, then I say, oh, actually, I was just doing that for your benefit and you're unfolding, or I'm just a mirror of you or just a thousand other workarounds that typically happen. So that's that one's super problematic. The creating of messianic, roles missions and destinies and therefore you know fundamentally all volunteer labor but the, you know but the guru drives are roles like those kinds of problems happen and the fe- the separation from family and from community and from social work all and, and a and a crypto puritanism of where it's we're saved or pure and the world is dirty all of those things are super problematic and then the uh, the last one is just any form of weaponizing peak states and trauma states so if you get into a state of pure ecstasy or deep catharsis your boundaries are eroded and you're super vulnerable to being imprinted that is often a time where cultic leaders will use those moments to extract pledges of loyalty fidelity atonement payment i'm signing over my trust fund to you or i'm so sorry and i have to grovel you know or whatever it would be and those are all generally bad news so if we reverse them we're like okay well what would an ethical cult do an ethical cult would say hey and this and again i'm drawing on zach stein's work in educational theory but his notion that the author, teacherly authority is contextual and context and subject dependent so i might be able to take somebody up a mountain and back safely but don't ask me to balance your taxes and so that notion of the person who is in the front has simply covered a certain amount of ground that you may also be choosing to cover and they maybe have root beta or information, like there's a rock here, there's water there, there's a hard patch here, and you can sleep there. Great. Now, if you share that information, it's not that I am a demigod because I'm standing up higher than you. It's just, I was climbing this mountain before you got here. And I, and this information I have is because I've covered that terrain. Now, two things can happen in that situation. One is if I give you information on the path somebody who is not as skilled an athlete or, or mountaineer can then have a better chance of safely getting up there because they're not winging it. They're not flying blind. They're, they're benefiting from a crude intergenerational knowledge transfer. Or they could be somebody who is as good or even better an athlete. And then your information gets them to where you're standing and you're knackered. This is as far as you could get so far. They get to where you are with more gas in the tank and maybe time in the day. So now you can swap leads. And now you're like, okay, you take this next hard pitch because I'm out. But I helped you get to where we're standing, and now you can help me get to the next stage. And to me, that's an infinitely healthier way of relating to teacherly authority, situational and context dependent. The middle one of creating in groups and out groups is like, hey, look, this is homegrown humans for all of us, like all of us or none of us. And if we are anything we're doing is pulling us up and away from that stand, you just know, just directionally, that's pathological. If it's bringing us down and among, with greater compassion for our brothers and sisters and all of humanity that's probably a good thing you can't hurt that i'm aware of and then the final one of the, the sort of weaponizing of peak states i think there just has to be a notion of real precision around what are commitments and consent and that if you are in state And again, it could be one of raw vulnerability, broken, open, or it could be exuberant, ecstatic and high as a kite. But those are seen as non-consensual spaces. You navigate and negotiate how to come and go from them, but you don't extract anything in those spaces or places. And so, for instance, right? I mean, you guys are both familiar with Kempo Roshi, Diane Hamilton, the big mind process, those kind of things. And we've played with this when we run programs and events and have added to it do fun body work, do visual, uh, do all kinds of things to boost and juice the state and the field that you can access to do the voice dialogue with the different topics. However, I really, really don't like being the one to facilitate that. Because if I am also the trainer, if if I'm the mountain gun, and I'm like, I'm going to call you on your shit, I'm going to whip you into shape, and we're going to lay out all these models about how to make sense of things, I should not also be the hierophant. It's kind of like the ethics of like a doctor should have an ethical barrier about treating their own family because they're not going to be objective. And the same thing with like, we don't facilitate psychedelic states. Like we leave that last 10%. It's like we can potentially connect you with therapists. We can connect you with clinicians we connect you with something else. Go have that experience outside of our field so that when we come back, our relationship is still tracking on the same levels of agreement and the same realm or domain of teacherly authority. And so that we can kick your ass on a bunch of other stuff without having blurred where the lines are. And, and, and I think that's possible. And, and ultimately like even another thing just to say about the cultic tendency is I think there's a quite a, again, a kind of crypto Puritan, almost moralistic assessment of a lot of these communities. And there's a sense that when a guru has gone wrong, when it's gone bad, it's because they had feet of clay. It's because they were, really only in it for the money, the sex, the power, the whatever. And and I think that obscures all sorts of more nuanced and interesting things that happen, especially with true, true prodigious talents who then go dark late in the game. And you're like, but wait, there was so much light. There was so much potency. There was so much juice and joy and goodness. And then why did it go wrong? And if you just say, oh, tut, 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 they, they were rotten from the core all along. And the whole thing was always a sham. See, we told you. I think that's a sort of juvenile and uncurious assessment, and very fear-based, right? <laughs> because, because I think that there's there's something else that goes on, which is, and and, and Roger, I mean, you know, like I was 100% scanning, our, I mean, in that integral community, there was a pretty abysmal track record of backing dark horses, of backing charismatic teachers who then put it in the ditch. So my inquiry was was that, how can they start bright and then go dark? And my sense was, oh, if it's the Lucifer effect, if you get to a place where you're so luminous, whatever your internal is, you know whatever you're doing to pull juice and wisdom and insight, and you get so bright that you basically then say, dare thee to look upon me and spot my imperfection, and everybody just is blinded by your light, then you can be 99.99% translucent with one speck of shadow. But now you're pulling kundalini overdrive, you've got the power of a community that's harnessing and looping back through you and all that stuff. And then that little one spot, you can be almost Metatron. (laughs) And then it just metastasizes and you become a Sith Lord in almost no time because you've divorced yourself from, from your humanity and you've divorced yourself from reciprocity and you're running... Basically, nitrous oxide, like running it through a Volkswagen. You can have those, you know, how there's those street rod drag races, and they'll put a like a rusty old like Pinto, and they'll pull up to the dentist in the 911, and they'll be like, "You want to race for money?" And they'll just run nitrous oxide through their engine. They're like, "Way," you know, they whiz down the the track. That's kind of, that that nitrous oxide boost on the motor will melt the engine block eventually, but for a while it goes like hell. And that's kind of the psychosocial dynamic that happens. So, so that's the Luciferian move. Like I'm too bright for you to catch my, you know, my imperfections. And the the Christic move is it is in, it is at the intersection of my divinity and my mortality that lies my humanity. And it is critical. And I think that's why the story of the Nazarene is so powerful is he didn't know what he was doing. He was terrified. He didn't want to have to do it. And all of his friends left him high and dry at the last minute. And his very people that were praising him one minute were mocking him the next and chanting for his death. You're like, that's a really good little tidy summary of what it's like to be a human. And he did it anyway. Right. And right. And so those are some of the moves. And and, and I think that so that so that the, the other part I just wanted to share was I shared all this stuff a couple of years ago at an event, like here's all the maps and models. Here's all the landmines of how cultic tendencies go wrong. And then we did a nighttime breath work, music, light. Pumping ceremony. Like no, no, it was no ceremony. It was a, it was a protocol. It was highly neuroscientific. we were totally showing our work. We're like, this is the functions. This is the interventions. This is what should happen. We were completely like open book to be empowering people. And I was up on stage facilitating and people dropped into a state. They'd been doing some gas assisted breath work and this and that. And, and they, and we, and we got into like a Delta wave, coherent, non-ordinary collective field. And then I said something into the microphone. I don't remember what it was. I think I might've said playfully something that had come up in our personal practice. I said, I said, and this is the moment before the moment that just happened. And the whole thing went, and I was like, oh, fuck. Okay, we're here. We're now in kind of like magical space. People, like, people are laughing. They're cracking up. They're like, oh my gosh, what, what, what? And one person who I had a close relationship with and knew me was like, oh, oh my God. I suddenly got totally freaked out. You were up there. There were the lights behind you, the flower of life. You had your scarf. And I was like,
0: oh,
2: you know, and and it's just like, what if this is like the sneakiest cult ever is like the meta dismissing all the other ones. But really, somehow this is still a one. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, I've just spent 72 hours telling you where every single landmine we're about to hit is. And Mm. when we hit them, instead of that increasing your trust, it actually, you still startled you still duck and covered in exactly the same spot so such a good lesson because that then prompted me to realize i was like oh we have all been assuming just tacitly i think that the emergence of cultic tendencies was a bug in the code right it was the fault of a a flawed leader it was the fault of dependent Mm -hmm. followers it was it was a bug i don't think it is i think it's a feature i think that when you boot up humans and there is another human, the hierophant, the minister of the sacred at the top of the circle, connecting the circuit and everybody powers up, there is that projection of golden shadow. There is that imprinting onto the other and it and it's a feature, it's structural. So the question isn't, oh, every time it happens, see, told you that's not, it's like, that is a biohazard. We actually need to accept that and work with it. So my provisional solution, which I'm really excited to develop as we go forward on this is if you're going to be running ceremonies like what's church 3.0 without cultic tendencies you actually you have a man and a woman you have paired hierophants in costume potentially even masks but not necessarily and they rotate so that as the community gathers and grows you treat the officiants as Actors in the archetypal theater, not as cults of personality. It's not Tony Robbins and you're following him into the hallway to get an autograph. It's Bill and Susie this week and it's Sammy and Frank the next week. And it is the role that they're taking on. And by the way, when they come off stage, you know, you're like, yeah, thanks very much. Smack, smack, smack. You're not that special. Go and do some dishes. Like go to the back of the line, take on a different role in the community and play forward because, you know, you don't have anybody. Fanboying the ringmaster of Cirque du Soleil. They understand that the person who puts on the top hat and the tails and says, you know, it says, hear ye, hear ye, or come one, come all to the greatest story ever told, that's a ringmaster. They don't have extra special skills. And I think decoupling cult of personality with the potency of the role of the Hierophant and depersonalizing it, making it a community based effort and rotating through, I mean, it's pretty much like a Geiger counter, like you've had too much exposure to golden shadow, you know, you need to be cleansed or put in a hazmat suit or a decompression chamber for a while. Like having some of that sort of almost energetic hygiene protocols, safety protocols is another way that we can pull heavy juice in large group coherent environments without it metastasizing into unhealthy experiences for facilitators or or participants.
1: Yeah, it's very Quakerly, some of the things you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. And I know you you reference the Quakers a lot and have great respect for that tradition of white people who call themselves Christians who basically did good for most of their history, as far as I can see.
2: And, they minimize uh, their fuck-ups.
1: They really do. They really do. Yeah.
0: No small achievement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but
1: th- but then again, you know, Jerry Garcia. There was. They didn't keep changing Jerry's every week. Jerry did his thing, but somehow he didn't hold it. N- none of them did. They just created the energy with with the people there and the music, and you know? they were all yeah, good.
2: Okay and, and sometimes there are just exceptional humans, and yeah. we have to have space for that. Like no one could play like he could. And there was a thing he did that ceased to be guitar at all. And it was channeling Quicksilver Christic Starlight. And and there's a gen, there are generations of people. I mean, I did a series of podcasts to accompany the book. And in a couple of weeks, I interviewed Amy Cuddy from Harvard, Rick Doblin, Wade Davis, the anthropologist, and the, and maybe Eric Davis or something. And without me pre-wiring anybody, they all volunteered that going to dead shows early in their life had been pivotal moments in their personal and then professional work. And you're like, holy shit, this is such a this is such an amazing selection of fascinating humans who have done profoundly innovative creative work and yet they were all lit up by a lineage that is, you know, as, as Campbell said, you know, he, 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 and he said they were closer to the Dionysian rituals. But I mean, you, you can make a case of the Lucinian in the sense of the impact on civilization, culture and that kind of thing. And you're like, OK, I'm just curious. What was that? What is that? And how do we provide that for more people across a broader cross section of cultural orientations? so that you don't have to be a San Francisco deadhead or a New England prep school kid <laughs> to have a crack at that particular train? How do we translate them into a thousand different cultural applications?
0: Yeah, and that speaks to two of, the, two of your points in your book, Recapture the Rapture, that one, one is it's that whatever the possibilities are f- for mainstreaming some of these or scaling some of these uh, technologies or ways of opening to the heights and then bring it down to earth it has to be scalable it has to be open source you pointed out that people can work with principles and come up with their own there's so much in what you what what you said there. john I, I don't want to jump in you're on a on a roll here was there something you and to-
1: well no I, I just. Like so many touchstones in yourself that really respond me and, and re- referencing the Quakers. And I was going through a dark green phase. back And I didn't think there were any good white people in the world before I met Roger. I went to the French meeting in Berkeley. Started going there and it was bound to my soul. And they would sit there in silence. And they had a clerk, not a very sexy position. I'm the clerk. And that kept rotating every year, I think. Uh, they listened a lot. And they sat in silence, and then at the end, if anybody had anything to say, they'd stand up and speak to it. And they spoke to my condition perfectly, mm-hmm. and I bring friends, and they would speak to their condition. It was quite a a, a wisdom gathering. So that healed me a lot. I, what 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 influence have the Quakers have on you? Because it does come up in your talk quite a bit. Mm. Uh.
2: Well, my my best friend and college roommate, his grandfather was Elton Trueblood, who was that Quaker theologian, who was the Stanford chaplain. He had by he was actually pivotal in the undoing of the Japanese internment camps advised Eisenhower and others. So he kind of came from an, a, a deeply rooted family lineage. And, and I think that was probably it. And, and he was also a, a boarding school deadhead from a Quaker school. So he was, he, you know, he, for me, he was like when I was like hyper analytical and super cynical as a youngster, like this world's fucked and it doesn't seem to make any sense. And all the assets who are in charge are just full of it. He would just be holding this base note of like, yeah, but there's like groovy things and love and possibility and like, let's listen to some music. So between him and my wife, they were sort of these beautiful ballast points that prevented me from just, just melting down into white hot rage and frustration. So I think that's, that's a, that's a huge part of why I've always been curious and had a soft spot, but then, you know, then you also go into the the history of Quakers shakers and some of those other movements and, and just that, Again, that kind of antinomian, let the mystery say the mystery." You know, they talk of the light, but they don't generally don't get more prescriptive than that. And there's mm-hmm. kind of that element of speak when spoken through, and that sort of sense of channeling something and then the notion of a gathered meeting, some nod to yeah. co- collective coherence. And yet the rest is a sort of tentative exploration together. And that just to me feels like that's the sort of, That is arguably the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Like there's a sort of elegant minimalism to that. And, And I think there's two things that we are constantly bumping up against, but I just don't feel like we're, I don't feel like the water is settled enough for us to kind of see it clearly and be talking about it. But one is, is what is group coherence and whether that's group flow, whether that's communitas, whatever the name we attach to it, something magical happens when a small or large group of people get together with some form of shared intention and/or resonance. And everything from synchronicities to nonverbal communication to shared intuition to heightened uh, pattern recognition or problem solving or whatever. Things happen when you sync a bunch of humans up together. And yet we tend not to know what that is. And usually there's some savant, there's somebody who's cracked it through charisma, transmission, resonance, whatever it is. And generally they don't always play well with it like we get looped into those states where like oh my gosh this is amazing this is magical this is mystical and they're like yep and that's all me or and then then they add a whole reality tunnel explanation or whatever but we're just i would say we just should be more curious and more cautious but also more courageous about investigating that because that's a huge boost of juice and then the other is what is this non what is that information layer like? And because we've had a lot of people bungee jumping into it, like these punctuated moments and breakthroughs, and then people coming back with usually false certainty of what they've seen and what it means. But we've got so many people punching through into that realm now that if we actually did a big data analysis of all those pinpoints of light, you start getting dimensionality, you start getting an actual topography of that terrain. We've all been kind of doing it on the slide right? I mean, through all of human history, there's always been the nod and the allusion to I just created something or whether that's Einstein's quantum theory or Newton's apocryphal apple or Archimedes or whatever. And it's sometimes it was the the grace of God for Augustine or St. Francis. Sometimes it's the muses. If you were the the Greeks, it's the realm of ideal forms. It's Bucky Fuller's design realm. Like, What is that non-corporeal realm of information and inspiration? How do we get there? How do we come back and do stuff with it? And then what does it mean and where is it? And how does it, what what are the physics of the metaphysics? How does it work? And to me, those two things, group coherence and the physics of the metaphysics, arguably the next unlocks. I feel like we're just children fumbling around in the dark right now. And there's an awful lot of, it's almost like trampling a crime scene. You know, there's all of our fingerprints and all of our footprints are crisscrossing everything. And there's no, like we're just trampling the information we should be really looking at carefully because i think connecting those two gives us the the possibility of stepping into the next phase of human development and this is a an immature metaphor for me right now but it's just like my working placeholder that i'll probably spend the next few years trying to drill into is i think that what is next for humanity if we can get there yeah. is analogous to hominids Discovering speech. So, if you think that like we were pointing and grunting hairy apes for a long, long, long time, and then out came logos. And once we did that, we were able to create and express and conceptualize past, present, and future, sign symbols and signifiers, deities, philosophy, technology, uh, governance, story. There was all sorts of capacities that just came up when we kind of loosened up our tongue and were able to make coherent sounds (laughs) into consonants and vowels and thoughts and words. And that we still were hairy apes. We still had to avoid the saber tooth tigers and we still had to get enough glucose to the brain. So like our base condition didn't change a bit, but we added on an operating level that completely transformed who we are and what we do and how we conceive of ourselves and how we move matter. So what is next could it be? Like if we actually articulate the physics of the metaphysics and we can figure out what are the dynamics of group coherence and our stabilized access to and fro shuttle running to the mystery, and then incorporate that into a transgenerational sense of self and a transcorporeal sense of self. So it's not just me now in this meat suit, but it's my ancestors and my descendants. And I have a steady uplink to a non-physical realm of information that I'm actually steering from as often as not. Who are we then? And what choices do we make, both for ourselves and together?
0: Beautiful. And it feels as though, just as the birth of language moved us out of the pre-rational, into rational shared communication and a shared cumulative learning, so too the next move into this what feels like a transrational space if we could, if we can live in that transrational domain and basically download rather than try to figure stuff out then it's it it is a different mode of knowing that's that is actually available to us all at any moment but to do that in any co- continuous way let alone a sustained communal way Offers, I think. I think you're pointing to a whole new mode of possibility there.
2: Yeah, exactly. And everybody's doing it right now. It's just balkanized, you know. And, and I mean, and I have that experience. I've had that experience more than once. Of, I mean, a that, like that death rebirth protocol, which I shared, kind of the neuroscience and the methodologies behind. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware if that's been done before, but I think it, at least at least in it, I hadn't come across it any place, and I'd been looking. So it was that sense of here's the neurophysiology and the pharmacology of actually precipitating a death-rebirth ritual, which until now have been metaphorical or religious, but no one was ever describing what was happening under the hood. So if we now have that experience, and now you can open source that, and anybody can go and conduct that experiment themselves, you, you, you know, in that moment of like low Delta wave EEG while conscious, not deep dreamless sleep, but I am some, there's a degree of alertness and awareness to that, it tends to leave you with a sense of a the heightened information. You can sort of think mm-hmm. anything you want about anything you can think of with a 300 IQ for as long as you're there, and some sense of stepping outside of time, some sense of like, whoa, it's, it's it's almost like you know, like like the Daffy Duck or Bugs Bunny where they'll be like playing, and then like Daffy Duck will get the eraser and he'll like, you know, he breaks the fourth wall and he kind of erases part of the screen and like steps out behind it, and you're like, oh, like that kind of experience happens and it happens consistently. And then you also get a sense of like, oh, whoa, this space is not unpopulated by other humans coming here. (laughs) You know, like there's a lot of people coming and going from that realm. Some of it's beautiful and collaborative and some of it's potentially even like weaponized and contested, which then you realize, oh shit, like this is like, we are incredibly naive psychonauts. What is the possibility of securely annexing access to these realms. And again, like most individual creatives, I mean, a scientist who's had some epiphany, I mean, I know one actually, he's just revolutionized the field of- the origins of life. In fact, I think even Ken had had some conversations with him and he had this, he had the entire download on high dose mushrooms and the old growth redwoods, but that's not what he fucking said in his peer reviewed paper. He took to his colleagues. They, they workshopped the thesis. They then hammered it out and it's all footnotes and citations and science, blah, blah, blah. blah. But that's not actually where that information came from initially. Of course. Yeah. Right. And how many, I mean, how many people are in the closet? as having access to these realms and bringing things in a Promethean style to humanity, to civilization, art, technology, culture, medicine, whatever it would be. And yet people have just been keeping it under their hats because they would have been ridiculed by their colleagues and kicked out of their professions if they'd said, this came to me in a vision one night and and, <laughs> yeah. and here it is. So the question is, is like, can we take all of those anomalous experiences and experiments and now, Kuhnian sort of paradigmatic shift? Can we actually kind of create a new map that includes them as something more than error messages and even actually builds an ontology with those at the center?
0: Yes. And just to take it even a, even a further step, there's been an implicit assumption in what we, as we've been talking, that there's one realm of Knowledge or intuitive transrational capacity available to us. And that's been the kind of an assumption built into most of the traditional contemplative traditions that there is one final state or realization. And yet you find a subtext, uh, smaller stream of people with uh, Dogen in Zen, for example, or, or Ramakrishna, Adida more recently, and most recently. Hamid Almas, the founder of the diamond work, he says exquisitely that that each opening, each realm of experience, each transcendence need not be a final, final endpoint, but rather can be a portal to something further, the infinite possibility or infinite game of of transcendence there.
2: Yeah. And I think maybe that's actually helpful because that I think is an implicit point of why I actually, what I'm, Advocating for seems, I think, probably, especially to anybody who's cultivated states themselves, they may look at what I've laid out as simplified. Like they may have fancier, more baroque maps. Like there's there's nine levels to the thing. And then you go through this, and then you go through that, and you do this other thing. And I mean, I remember having a conversation with a bunch of sort of hardcore psychonauts who were actually exploring. Sonoran toad in coherence with other people, and this was down in Mexico. They were doing medical stuff, doing EEGs, doing all these things. And he's like, "Well, did you experience this? And then did you did you do that thing? And did you do the other thing?" And then we having this conversation. I was like, "I'm pretty sure we've been ending up in similar destinations or locations, but I just haven't been freezing, like stopping the tape at the mm-hmm. same places you have to notice those same transitions or inflections. And I sure should have been naming them and reifying them the way you have. So in some respects, like." the reason i say let the mystery stay the mystery isn't because it doesn't render itself an infinite star lattice of boggling proportions or not it's to say you can go down those paths indefinitely so let's just have you come back this way it's not that you can't build more baroque frameworks you can forever in all directions the question is is does it serve and so the minimalist Notion of like, hey, does it grow corn? Like, are you actually coming home and being useful? Summoning it is optional. Getting home is mandatory. Are you down and among with your brothers and sisters? Are you being kind and courageous and creative? Those back to the, you know, the weak point isn't the light. The weak point (laughs) is us on Monday mornings. And so can we always just kind of steer people through that ascendant aspect and just get them around the horn as fast as possible? Back into service. That, to me, you know, and the humility and restraint—the pathological restraint—of just letting the mystery stay the mystery.
0: Yeah, yeah. And a couple of perhaps helpful concepts come to mind here. One is uh, there is such a tendency to assume that the, the most powerful experience I've had is a the experience, and b it's the one that everyone has. I, I, I sometimes call that the universal me fallacy. But there's a very <laughs> Very basic psychological principle called premature cognitive commitment. And it's when you have an experience and you prematurely put a framework on it and that freezes the developmental or unfolding process, which is yeah. pretty much exactly what you said.
2: Yeah. Premature extaculation, you know, like just, <laughs> <laughs> just don't, don't nut all over the place just because you got, like, got really hopped up on God consciousness, like yeah. hold
0: it, let yourself cook in it and then do stuff with it. Uh, also also premature immaculation. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So let's see. So much in what you you said. I want to just invite you. Is is there anything else you'd like to get into here, Jane? And and
1: it's also a beautiful place to stop if you feel like, Jayme, you've really brought it back to to service, kindness, finding Mm -hmm. out what you're supposed to be doing and doing it well. Well, I mean, I
2: I think the conclusion, right? I mean, if I'd had any, you know, ultimately – the conclusion is the everything for me. Like the rest is just preamble to have earned permission, hopefully, to say that. And, and it was that sense of, hey, and this is what I meant about the Gita. This is what, you know, this is abandoned hope. All ye here, enter it's, here. It's that sense of, look, folks, we can do all of this. We might even get it right this time and it still might not be enough. So how do we reckon with going from hopeful hope to radical hope? How do we seek refuge in the utter, futility of our prospect and show up fully and leave everything on the field with love. And our buddy, Andrew Huberman at Stanford, he actually got this published in Nature, so a a major breakthrough in his research, but he was studying, he was using mice and studying their threat response to fear. How do they respond when there's the shadow of a bird of prey over them? And do they duck and cover or do they stand and fight? And of course, mice, 98% of them duck and cover. And the only two, and the 2% that thump their tails and, and try to fight only do it when they're safe and out of the way, like a little yippy chihuahua. And then they stimulated a section of their brain called the nucleus reunions. And when they did that prompted courageous behavior uh, salience enhancing stimuli, and the mouse would actually turn and fight. They kind of do the, do the Bruce Lee like, bring it. They'd like stand and face the shadow and thump their tails and be like, I'm in. And then, really, really interestingly, they gave the mice choices of stimulation and they chose to have that region of their brain, the courage center, stimulated over sex and food. So you're like, holy shit, our design, you know, obviously questions of in mice and in labs to humans and all of our complexity, but um, there have been studies showing that when humans have the comparable region of their brain stimulated, we also prefer it over sexual sexual options and, and, and other uh, dopaminergic reward systems. So you're like, holy shit, we are hardwired for courage at the core of our being. And then you think of Gandhi's Sachagraha, you think of MLK's Adoption of that as soul force, that ability of what happens through history when humans have set aside our basic survival programming of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. And we actually step up to do the courageous thing, never mind the cost to ourselves. And that to me is an asymmetrical force multiplier. It's the only one I have hope for. All the other ones don't pencil out. You're like, oh, well, maybe a cop. 26, we'll figure it out and we'll find good carbon sequestration or Paris, Accords, and maybe we can reelect Biden or let's get Obama, let's get Michelle Obama. What's going to happen? No, none of these things are going to happen. We are consistently fucking that up beyond all reckoning and, and steering. But soul force, soul force has shaped history and it echoes through time and space. And you can't get that from a post-it note. You can't get that from a Tony Robbins retreat. It, you can't fake it. We actually have to initiate ourselves and each other from firstborns, animal tribal primates seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, to twiceborns who have nothing left to do but bear witness to soul force in ourselves and for each other. And that, to me, that is a potential time bender. Like we actually might not pull this off in linear time, but in some other way, in some other time and timescape and chain of causation, we could pull it off. But my sense is like it's soul force or bust for the future of humanity.
0: Yeah. And Jamie, you've given us such an exquisite I hesitate to call it a big picture, because in one se- one sense it's all you've held it all in the mystery, <laughs> acknowledged that any any picture is incomplete. And yet you have covered this extraordinary terrain from providing us in your book, Recapture the Rapture, with a whole, I hesitate to call it a technology of transcendence, but in one sense it is, for mainstreaming ways of creating meaning and purpose and and vitality in our lives in the face of these inexorable challenges and possibly insurmountable challenges we face, and not only going up and up the mountain and having the peak experiences, but returning into the nitty gritty of our daily lives as instruments of that which we have touched or which we have been touched by and kind of allowing ourselves to be erased in very healthy ways back into the ordinary the mundane the day-to-day and you quoted the the ox pictures at the even mm-hmm. the at the final stage even the wisest cannot find them but the commentary on the one before that is i love it is the erasure any kind of specialness if birds were to drop flowers on him he could not but be embarrassed <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes 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 or, or, or ramakrishna right where he's like he's like i am the dust on the feet of your servant servant
0: ah <laughs> jamie it's been such a gift to explore with you in this way and uh a deep bow to all you've done for all of us with your exploration, your work, your pushing of boundaries, your living of that spiritual dynamism that you've expressed, the soul force, and your unique expression of that, your your books, and most recently, your recapture the rapture. These are all incredible gifts. and. We don't know whether, you know, we don't know whether any, all their contributions are going to be enough, but doesn't seem like there's anything else to do but play as full and full on as we possibly can. And you're a beautiful model of playing full on. And it's a, just a delight to play with you. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, very very grateful and humbled. Thank
1: you
2: very much. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm tickled that you guys took the time to, to dive into the content and that it landed for you. So thank you.
1: And thanks, everybody. Be well, guys. Today's episode was brought to you by iwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do, from John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.